Welcome one and all to an episode of my RPG podcast. Now a little note to you all, this episode was recorded right before WitcherCon, so I figured who would be better to talk about Witcher and TTRPGs than Sarah Thompson. Sarah is somebody who's been, who I've been following for quite some time on Twitter. She's a giant advocate for the disability representation in TTRPGs, and not to mention has written and created content for 5e Dungeons & Dragons, Starfinder, Pathfinder, and a whole bunch of other games, all in support of incorporating wheelchairs and disability into our games here. We have a fantastic chat. We geek out a ton over Witcher, as is expected, and I think she's one of the most fantastic and impressive young creators that we have out there. Definitely give this one a listen. Welcome, one and all, to a new episode of My RPG Podcast. Today's guest is Sarah Thompson. Sarah, will you please introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Sarah Thompson. I work in the TTRPG sphere, working on things like The Witcher, um, and I make a lot of free disability content for tabletop games, um, like the Combat Wheelchair for 5th Edition Dungeons and & Dragons, and um, a whole big supplement that I've just recently put out um, for The Witcher tabletop game. And I definitely want to take a big bite out of that uh, supplement that you created and a lot of things that you've done. But let's go back to the very, very beginning. Sarah, do you remember your first experience with RPGs? Yeah, um, it was in high school. Um, and it wasn't a positive one. It was a, a fourth edition Dungeons & Dragons game. Um, and, you know, uh, thoughts on fourth edition aside. Um it was more the the group I was with was not great. Um, it it was kind of dominated by um, young uh, boys, um, and my character, being the only female character at the time, was kind of made to be like the damsel in distress a lot. Um, uh, in in terms of like her contributions to the party, which really sucked, um, and it kind of turned me off tabletop games for a long time. Um, and then in sixth form which for people who are not in the UK is your two years before you go to university. Um, I spent time with um, a partner at the time who uh, introduced me back into fifth edition um, and we played like some single ones where they would um, dungeon master and I would just play a character to kind of get a feel for it. Um, and then we got a group going at university um, and uh, in our kind of private lives as well during sick form and I really kind of just fell in love with the game um, and have kind of been broadening, um, expanding you know, my horizons since then in terms of tabletop. Um, I'm now not just uh, a D&D player uh, I play a lot of different games each, you know, a lot of them that I am uh, very passionate about 
I'm sorry to hear about the uh, frustrating first experience that you had, but I'm really glad that you had a partner and friend who would help you kind of get back in that, that sphere, especially later on. And it is interesting that, you know, you picked that up before kind of the RPG renaissance where I've had quite a few people on here. If they're uh, on the younger side of their RPG experience, it's usually because they came into it thanks to the wave of, you know, Twitch streaming, YouTube, uh, stuff that got associated with fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, which is kind of the dominant um, RPG sphere. Do you, do you remember with those early games that you were playing, what sort of characters you like to play, if there was like unique traits or things that you were interested in? Um, when I was introduced to 5th edition, I was kind of <clears throat> um, unsure of what I should play or what I should do. Um, so I kind of went, uh, kind of, not that stereotypical, but kind of a bit um, vanilla in terms of fantasy. I just went with a wood elf rogue um, who was an archer, um, and his name was Mahanan. Um, I actually still have a miniature of him on my shelf um, that was painted, um, and uh, he he's kind of grown into his own character now, but um, at the time it was just very uh, kind of bog standard. He had like a very generic backstory um, about being like this kind of wandering outlander kind of type, um, and uh, yeah, like that was kind of the first character I ever made, and then I really, really hit my stride, I think, with bards and druids. Um, I absolutely love both. Um, those two classes are my absolute favorite, near and dear to my heart. Um, I played a Circle of Twilight um, druid, which was uh, a, I believe it was, an Unearth Arcana, and they didn't make it into the, um, into like the, the actual rules for D&D. It's still an Unearth Arcana. Um, which, you know, I won't, I won't forgive them for because I feel like it only needed a tweak on, uh, just the, um, dice pool, uh, for the harvest scythe. I thought that was pretty much that all needed fixing, but, uh, they, they kind of scrapped it and I think it got put into, um, like the, more of the concepts got put into Circle of Spores. Um, but, uh, Circle of Twilight was like my favorite druid one. Um, and then I started playing bards a lot, um, and, uh, apparently it's not very popular, at least among my friends, to have this opinion, but I really, really love Balabards. I absolutely adore them. Um, one of my fav favorite characters, um, Selbuckthorn, uh, was my favorite, um, like, character ever to play. Uh, he was great, had a lot of great moments with him. Um, and then there's also Rangers as well, um, but I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very drawn to Monster Slayer Rangers um, only. I couldn't really care less for the other ones, but Monster Slayer I definitely love as well, um, just because I had a, a character in a Curse of Strahd campaign that um, meant a lot to me as well. Oh yeah, you definitely want to get those uh, big hits and roll more dice, especially when you're trying to survive in Barovia. And as somebody mm -hmm. whose first character that they played was an elven ranger outlander rogue type named Kildor, i feel you on that starting <laughs> with a very um archetypical or tropey kind of beginning mm -hmm. in regards to characters um however i do want to ask because i've had so many people now over the years of this podcast i seem to notice a common trait amongst them all was there a theater arts background or, or writing creative writing anything before you ever got into rpgs for you uh yeah um really loved creative writing um and like uh drawing they do a lot of traditional uh it's mostly doodles nowadays um just because of work and everything uh but yeah i really enjoyed that 
side of creativity um i was introduced to things like uh the lord of the rings pretty young um from my granddad uh and he was super passionate about artwork as well so i kind of got it from there um and yeah like i i really enjoyed fantasy and uh being creative um so yeah like there, there is that background i think again for you yeah I I feel like that has to do, I think, with the um, comfortability of putting oneself out there and like trying a new thing, be it, you know, a voice or creator or drawing something or singing something or making music, which, you know, I find a lot of people going into the RPG sphere, especially when I try to talk them into it. They're like, I don't know, man, like I'm not good at improv or I'm not good at acting. I go, well, every conversation you ever have in life is improv. You're not going to a script, are you? You know, like you you Mm -hmm. should you should understand that a lot of the things we do you've done before, but I think because of the uh, appearance of like, Oh, it's a system and there's a, a way things have to be done that, that makes them kind of shy away. And I found with arts, arts, artisans and people who have, you know, creative writing and music and things like that in their background, they've already had to t- go over that first hurdle of saying like, I'm going to put myself out there and try something. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like, it was a good thing I think to have at university because, uh, I was doing, um, I did an arts degree, I did uh, my bachelor's in English language and literature, and like having that kind of creative outlet outside of um, what I was doing in terms of, you know, working for, for a degree was great. Um, and like, I think D&D kind of like, once you get used to it, and you've got a group of people that you really gel with, um, you know, you don't, you don't think about like, oh, what would my character do? You kind of just step straight into like the role of the character. Um, it becomes a lot easier and you can kind of bounce off your friends and things, you know, as you kind of, um, grow together. I learned, uh, recently, cause I'm six years in of my Monday campaign here consistently that, uh, some of the guys apparently had each other's, uh, names as the character names for a good, you know, year or so before they took the time to, you know, change the name over to the person's real name. Cause you got so used to calling each other in character that, you know, oh, that's not Dusty, that's Talbin or, you know, oh, that's not James, that's Lusa. Like you just enter that into your phone. I thought yeah. that was funny. So, Sarah, when you're playing all these games uh, as just a player, when do you start looking at creating more content of your own? Either taking the GM's chair or deciding, hey, I want to kind of create worlds or supplements or adding to the RPGs I'm playing. Um, in terms of when I really like got a bit more confident in D&D, it was probably um, about the end of first year at university um, of a you know, like a four-year stint of being there in my first year of uni, I kind of felt confident that, hey, I would maybe want to DM one-shots, and I did it with friends that I, I've, you know, found online and um, had, like, good experiences with that um, and really enjoyed it. It was very fun. Um, and I would, you know, make things up on the fly. I would kind of use, um, like, the very generic uh, published D&D content um, in terms of, like, a story, and I'd add things that would either change things up for what I had in mind, um, if I was going for like a spooky vibe or something, if I wanted to turn it on its head, or um, if I felt like uh, I could put something in that would like provoke a reaction from a character um, and their backstory. Um, And then I kind of got more and more confident to where I can just kind of, you know, sit down, have a few story beats on a piece of paper, like in bullet points, and kind of just bounce off there, um, and maybe a map if I'm doing a dungeon crawl or something. 
Um, but yeah, I'm pretty, pretty, um, confident with that now. Uh, and that was when I started, um, you know, stepping into, okay, I want to make more content. Um, and that kind of struck me when I was making, um, it was actually when I was making Cell Buckthorn. Cell himself wasn't a disabled character, but it was when I started questioning why there wasn't rules for disabled characters. Not rules exactly, but mechanics um, for disabled characters, or why there were no disability content, and why in Curse of Strahd, you know, the only disabled character hid her disability because it was shameful. Um, like, that never really sat with me right. Um, and then I was like, well, you know, other people online make D&D content, why can't I make it with this kind of angle? Um, or, you know, add things that would help my disabled friends um, enjoy and be able to roleplay characters more like them. Um, so yeah, that was kind of when I, uh, you know, kind of started to branch out into not just participating in D&D, but actively contributing, I guess you would say, to the community. So you're seeing this kind of need, there's the call to action, right, for you to kind of create content that you feel is lacking or representation that you feel is um, needed. When you start making your, your first, uh, you know, amount of co content, what, how is that process? How do you go super, you know, by the, by the, by the book, like you look for, you know, structure based out of the system that you're working in, I believe was D&D, or do you kind of just, here's the, the feel I want and then ask people, play test it. How does that whole process start? And then once you start uploading it, how did you feel and how was your reaction to your kind of, uh, well, well, we can get into it in more detail to obviously some of the positivity and some of the great things, which is why I followed you and I found you out on Twitter a while ago, but then also some negatives later. Um, I mean, the, the I'd been making stuff, but it had kind of just been between me and friends for just campaigns or just um, mm -hmm. little adventures together, you know, things like magic items and, and whatnot. Um, and then, uh, with a group of friends, um, who use, some of them who use wheelchairs, um, or had experience using wheelchairs at some point, um, we kind of like made offhand comments, um, and like hyped up about like, oh, if you could play a character who uses a wheelchair, that would be so cool. Like, you could use it as, you know, part as a, a weapon in combat. Like, it could be specially designed. It could have like all this fun stuff. Um, and, you know, that was kind of when I started um, penning down ideas for the combat wheelchair. Um, I was like, okay, well, it would have at most like three three movements, um, you know, like ram, I think tire strike was one, and crushing people beneath the wheelchair, which kind of ties into ram. Um, and then I was like, okay, now I have to think of, you know, other things, like uh, even just down to small things like seatbelts. So I went through like... Um, thinking about all these things, uh, the kind of general vibe or skeleton, I guess, of, of the concept, which uh, came through research, um, making use of the university library to look at um, disability sports um, and things like Paralympics, Murderball. I also watched um, the documentary, which is, I think, I think it's still free on YouTube, um, called Murderball, which is great um, and gives you like a proper insight um, into how not just the game works, but how these chairs are really like resilient and well made and well designed. Um, and in D and D, anything is possible. You know that you got Jarl Axel Bainray using a submarine. You've got things like um, 
uh, Spelljammer um, as well. So kind of, you know, a anything is possible. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I can actually do this. And then started going through, you know, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook, um, looking through um, loads of different aspects. Um, and like, I even had to go through like all the spells and everything. Um, and anti-magic fields kind of preparing for like every inevitability and that kind of came through playtesting like hang handing it out to friends and then um, you know taking back any problems that they'd encountered or if they felt it didn't represent the experience well enough or um, you know things things like that um, and then I shared it with friends and then um, you know I felt well I've made it and I haven't seen anybody else make it um, in the community and like I know that there's a lot of disabled people out there who like my friends and myself would really like to play a character that's like them um, and uh, I released it for free um, you know kind of on a uh, confidence from, from my friends kind of piping me up to do it um, released it uh, online for free um, and um, so yeah, like the combat wheelchair was kind of that first thing publicly that I'd done. And what is your feelings about the reaction to it? I mean, I saw a great deal of positive things, and you got a kind of a bit of a popularity in the nerd sphere of your of your supplement getting noticed and being written about in articles and things like that. Uh, and obviously, you had some decriers as well, which um, you know it's free to you to talk about it whether you want to or not. Um. Yeah, it was, it kind of took off, I think, way more than I ever expected it to. Um, like, I knew it would mean something to other disabled people, and at the end of the day, that's who I made it for, um, and I couldn't have cared less if it only got, you know, two likes or one retweet, I couldn't have cared less. Um, but as long as it was out there for the community to use is what mattered, um, and it just kind of shut off. Um, and I think a lot of that was people who were big in the D&D sphere had somehow stumbled across it um, and retweeted it and, you know, talked about it. Um, one of those, like, for example, was um, Matt Mercer from Critical Role, so that was pretty big. Um, and, yeah, it, it all kind of just became very big very quickly, and it was very overwhelming um, and still is to think about. Um, but it was kind of overwhelming, um, especially when, because obviously it inevitably attracted, uh, you know, really nasty people who just wanted to exclude disabled people because they don't want to think about it in their games, um, or admit that disabled people can exist in fantasy, or that they would want to exist in fantasy. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it was a lot, um, but I am very grateful to like those big people in the D&D community who stood by it and showed support for it because, you know, I, I'm adamant that people like big people have a, have a lot of sway in the community and can really help normalize these things, you know, and so, so can like the actual companies themselves if they want to, um, you know, uh, kind of talk about it would also hold sway. So having, Having them kind of, you know, talk about it, um, retweet it, put it in articles, it was uh, a lot, <laughs> very fast. I 
can't imagine how uh, a, a wave of emotions that must have been. And I mean, yeah, like see, seeing just in, you know, the prep to do this, I, I knew about some of the big names, but yeah, seeing it used with critical roles, seeing it, you on the official uh, Dungeon uh, Talk podcast there and, and like seeing all that stuff. I, I, I can't imagine you anticipate any of this happening, but I'm super, super uh, happy that people are resonating with it and seeing it as a, as a great supplement to the game uh, and, and really helping bring people in who may have feel a bit turned off by the fact that the game didn't consider them or, or, or what they uh, what type of characters they wanted to play. And, and to do it a little bit of a pivot here, because it's, I do want to eventually get to the major point, which if you guys are listening to, I would have said in the preamble to this episode that we're recording this right before WitcherCon. Um, I know you mentioned your love of Lord of the Rings coming from your family. Where did the Witcher fandom come in? Um, from my partner at the time. Um, she really liked, uh, I think she read the first book, like The Last Wish, and then I borrowed it. Um, and I was like, oh this is good I, I like this um and then you know that kind of spiraled into sort of destiny um then spiraled into blood of elves and you know so on and so forth through the the whole uh, the book series um and then i found out that there were video games like i kind of knew that there was a video game but i'd only ever known about um wild hunt i didn't know that there were like two before that um like it never resonated with me that the like the three claw marks on the book meant like undercover meant like you know it's the third game, um, so I actually uh, got the Witcher three first and I really really loved it. Um, kind of fell in love with everything about it, uh, and then I went back and I played the first one, the second one, and then replayed the third one and all the DLC, um, and uh, yeah, like it just kind of, especially after Baptism of Fire. Which is when Geralt, um, well, he he has a he takes a major injury which affects him greatly and becomes a disability, um, which you know kind of just stacks onto the to the other disabilities that Geralt has. Um, you know, he has PTSD trauma. Um, he is uh, infertile as well. People don't consider that, um, and also things like chronic pain. Um, the man's been through a lot, um, and reading especially baptism of fire like i'd already kind of enjoyed it and you know Geralt was like oh i like him he's a cool character um and then with baptism of fire is when i really really resonated with him because he would um talk about things about like feeling useless or being angry at his own situation and very frustrated and at the time i was 21 i think when i first started getting the witcher or 20-ish um and i was very angry um, with my own disability and I kind of had been since I was um, a, a young teen because uh, my symptoms started presenting at age 12 and suddenly I couldn't do things like whenever we went on school trips to um, to uh, theme parks I couldn't go on any of the rides because of my joints um, you know which sucked seeing your friends being able to do all these fun things and you're not allowed to join in um, so I kind of had like this whole big resentment building up and, but I went to, to therapy, especially kind of after that book, kind of before and, and after, and I talked about it. Um, and, you know, I think Geralt really helped me come to terms with it. Um, it's not to say that the books aren't problematic because they definitely are. And I always kind of tell people that on, on Twitter, um, you know, that they handle a lot of, uh, tough stuff. Um, and the use of um, 
I'm about to say a slur here, but cripple comes up a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, it kind of, um, but that kind of whole, uh, Geralt kind of reflecting on his, um, disability, how it affects him, um, emotionally and physically, and how it also affected his relationships with, um, people like, uh, Dandelion and Milva, um, really meant a lot. I could see myself, my situation in that, um, and, you know, it kind of helped me become more accepting of my own disability and uh i'm just really passionate about it as well um like in outside of disability the games and the books are so like great the lore is expansive there's great world building i love all the monsters um and you know my favorite character out of all of them apart from Geralt, was regis i loved regis a lot um so yeah like i, I just really kind of clung on to it um and i still absolutely love it even though i'm into other things but I, the witcher holds a very special place um in my heart and from what i've heard from other people who also enjoy the witcher and have you know enjoyed the books and, and games and everything have also kind of that it's you know it, it somehow has this very special place um in their heart um so yeah it, it clearly means a lot to a lot of other people as well yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely amongst them. I mean, I have a Witcher coin actually by my bedside, um, which is, you know, an accessory every now and then when I'm out and when people see that, they go, hey, and, and it's, it's from the game universe, by the way, the, uh, the Witcher coin I have because I actually started with the game like you. I was kind of, uh, tricked into thinking it was the Witcher Wild Hunt, not knowing that again, those three slashes are the three, which I think CD Projekt Red eventually did because they wanted not to like turn people off from being like, well, I never played the first two, so I can't get into the third game. Um, but yeah, no, I, I put in, you know, my first 200 hours completing that game and uh, falling in love and, and being told that there was books and it's from Poland. I'm like, oh, this is some of this is Slavic lore, me being Eastern European. I'm like, oh, this is kind of right up my alley. I know these references. I get these things. And uh, absolutely, it, it hits a chord with me. It strikes a chord. And yes, again, there's problematic things about it. It's it's written by a, a you know, post uh, Iron Curtain, you know, Polish gentleman. So there's, you know, some also salty approaches to language and females and things like that as well. But in, inside of those are amazing characters and amazing stories. And especially the band of characters that once you get into the main series, the first two books are an anthology uh, for people who don't know. It's kind of a collection of the short stories and you kind of begin the saga that is the proper Witcher books. You meet so many great characters and you get to encounter such a vibrant lore and world that, uh, it made me replay the game after I read the entire series. I went back and replayed the game and it hits so much harder because I'm like, ah, get that reference. I know that person. I know this place. I know what that's about. I understand that it was. Yeah. So I was, I was one of those people who was completely taken smitten by the Witcher series. So then being such a Witcher fan, being so into Witcher with Artal Sorian creating the Witcher RPG. I mean, how does it feel to get to work and do stuff for that? Um, it is still, uh, kind of just <laughs> unbelievable that I get to contribute to The Witcher in a way that, you know, I, um, help write the canon, I guess, um, especially in terms of the TTRPG and when it's set and everything. Um, so getting to do that and getting to create monsters um, and things that are either only lightly touched on in the books or the games and getting to, you know, write whole adventures about them. 
um and uh it's just it's great one of the one of the best things as well is like i've made some of my npcs that i've played in witcher games like little side characters or there's mentions of them in sidebars um and things for for adventures and stuff and you know like getting to like you know i get to say like oh my character's technically canon um which is always bizarre and great and um i can't believe that when Artausorium were looking for people for the job that I got the job, um, especially because it was like my first real job with writing. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's a great job. Like it doesn't feel ever like it's work. Uh, it's just fun, and I I love it um, every second of it. Um, and I, you know, I've been very lucky that Artausorium have you know kept coming back and. Um, freelancing with me um to work with them on things uh yeah like every project i've been on so far um can't say a lot because of ndas um but every project that i've been on so far i have loved um and you know really given my all and being with a group of people who are also really passionate about the witcher and who also really give their all on it as well like it's kind of hard like to ever feel like it's work um, it just feels like, you know, working with friends and like having fun making something together, which is just really nice. And I mean, I, I do want the people here to understand like just how uh, much output you make and just how much work you do. A lot of it for free. I mean, just recently you released a 122 page document about uh, a disability supplement for the Witcher pen and paper game. And that amount of content, let alone, I'm sure, the amount of prep you did, research, the amount of like time put into that, these are all. And and you, if you are an avid listener to podcasts, you know I've always been like this, and a lot of my guests are uh, adamant about this. You need to pay your creators, you need to pay your dungeon masters, and 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 people like that who put their time in. You need to show them that they're you know appreciated. And the fact that you release all of that for free is so striking to me and I, I i'm in awe and at the same time i'm like i mean are are are, are you okay you must be so tired from having to do so much work <laughs> uh, i mean how do you feel having just released medicine on the path um whenever i kind of release something that is as big and expensive as medicine on the path there's that kind of sense of just thank god it's out there um Medicine on the Path isn't finished. Um, it's still the the one that we see now is version 1.0, I guess you would call it. Um, there's going to be some additions and things. Um, I'm still researching into The Witcher. Um, you know, going through like every short story. Um, I plan on doing a whole section about curses and the lasting effects of curses and the kind of ableism inherent in fairy tales and curses, because you know the fairy tales are technically real history in The Witcher. Um, so uh, talking about that um, uh, in, in the next update is going to be really fun. Um, I am tired a lot um, <laughs> in a way that's beyond just my, you know, chronic fatigue. Um, but kind of the way that like uh, with, with working with Artalsorian games, it doesn't feel like a job. There are times where I wanted to quit on the project and I felt like it was just too much. Um, but I really, um, you know, kept coming back to it after breaks. Um, but in those breaks, I would be researching through books that I'd buy or 
loan out of the library and such on medieval medicine. I tried to make it as authentic to uh, medical history, um, and uh, because you know the witches, that pseudo medieval um, place. It's uh, for people who don't really know about the Witcher. It's not like D and D, where magic is kind of vibrant and everywhere. Um, magic. It runs through everything in the Witcher universe, but uh, sorceresses are kind of one of the few people who can use it, um, along with some priests, some druids, um, and people like Pellars and stuff. But um, it's kind of used for very selfish means or selfish gain. Um, everything has a cost, uh, and sorceresses, for example, um, are possibly one of the most selfish people in terms of using magic. Um, at least in the Witcher setting. Um, so having to, you know, think of ways um, medically that would make sense um, and historically would um, apply and um, knowing that I can't really use magic um, very much um, was a really big challenge, but it was something that I really enjoyed with um, the Witcher because, uh, you know, I worked on the, the combat wheelchair, which was... Um, has that kind of flair of D&D magic, anything's possible, and then going to the Witcher, which is um, a canon that is very restraining, and there's only so much you can do before it becomes like completely um, out of place in that universe and wouldn't exist. Um, so yeah, like it was, it was a lot of fun, and in terms of releasing content for free, um, I've always had this kind of policy um, that I don't really want to charge for representation if I feel it should have been in the core rulebook to begin with. Um, and, uh, you know, um, with talking with um, our Talsorian games, you know, they, they plan with disability representation better moving forward, things like that. Um, and uh, this, this project was more just a labor of love and a kind of, I guess, a love letter to The Witcher and what it meant to me. Um, during that time and I just really wanted to share it and a lot of the time um, the people in the community who are disabled aren't exactly people who have um, an amount of income where they can afford to um, spend it on um, things like supplements for games or you know even core rule books or dice or things like that so making it free makes it accessible to them um, so yeah, I kind of have that mix of policy on if I think it should be in the core rulebook, I won't charge for it because disabled people, I feel like, shouldn't have to be charged to be represented. Um, and also that I make it free so it's accessible to all disabled people, um, regardless of their income, financial um, state, etc. That is a fantastic approach to have, and it's very evident why one of your favorite characters is Regis as well, because you can make 122 pages about medicine, and you have such a <laughs> Hippocratic approach to the way content should be done in regards to the RPG sphere. Uh, I think that's really brilliant, sir. Thank you. That's very kind. So continuing in the Witcher vein, and as far as considering the now influx of new fans who are getting into the Witcher fandom, uh, especially because of the Netflix show, which did so well a, a couple of years, a year or so ago, um, I do want to ask you then, considering the fact that uh, I'm assuming you've watched the series, correct? Yes, I have. 
So we have three worlds of lore. That we have the book lore, we have the games lore, which deviates uh, because of rights reasons and things like that. And now we have the Netflix show lore. Um, which kind of universe, if you can, which Witcher do you you, you like the most? Um, for me, I think it will always be book. Um, just because like that was kind of the thing I got into first. It's 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 this very strange mix of um all of them I guess because I really love the books but I really love Doug Cockle's voice as Geralt so when I read the books I read Doug Cockle's voice um I can't not do that too every yeah, time I every just, time I read because I heard the audiobooks so I heard the audiobooks uh when I was working I was getting through the um uh, sorry I think it was yeah, it was Last Wish. When I was getting through Last Wish, I would go to work and then put on the audiobooks. And no disrespect to the gentleman who did the uh, audiobooks. <laughs> uh, first off, he called him Dandelion, which I was like, I don't, that's um, not how Doug Cockle says it. Yeah, it's very strange um, because in like the first few translations of the books, it is spout Dandelion. And then it kind of turns into Dandelion by time of Blood of Elves is Dandelion. Like, I think it's just a translation. That's error. what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> And obviously, for for the us Witcher nerds, we know actually it's even not even Dandelion. It should be Buttercup is the direct translation, yes. but uh, you know of Yaskir. But we 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 uh, had to get Dandelion because they felt it was, I guess, too feminine, um, which is a conversation for another time. Yep. But the also other thing was the audio. Um, the gentleman doing the narration did like a northern accent, a northern English accent, uh, kind of ish, as, as well as far as I could tell for Geralt. And I was like. And I was like, wait a minute, that's, no, I like my Geralt with that sort of weird, neutral, <laughs> kind of dry, like, Doug Cockle sound. Yeah. So I just stopped listening, <laughs> no disrespect to the gentleman, I stopped <laughs> listening to his Geralt, and I was like, that's not my Geralt. Um, but but a fun fact about uh, Dandelion is, um, in every single uh, iteration of, like, translation, it's always a flower name, and uh, the flowers are always yellow. Um so in English, it's dandelion. In German, it's Schrittersporn, uh, which is a uh, version of, I think it is buttercup, or it is dandelion, one or the other, so it's another yellow flower. It's also the same in French and Italian. Um, so I, I kind of like that consistent theme, that yellow goes all the way through it. Um, but yeah, with uh, <laughs> with 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 the voice for Geralt, um, I think that uh, Henry Cavill also did a fantastic job. Um, and I know that he was also inspired by Doug Cockle because, you know, Henry Cavill's a really huge nerd and really loves the Witcher games and books, bless him. Um, and uh, I think he did really well, but there's just that kind of special place for, uh, for Doug Cockle's voice um, because it was like the first time I'd kind of been introduced to Geralt actually having a voice after I'd read the books. Um, and I always thought, you know, that if, if he was to have a voice, it would be Doug's, um, because he's so good at capturing that, um, I think it's described at one point in the book that Geralt has this really kind of gravelly, unpleasant voice that people kind of, who are friends with him, grow used to, and I feel like Doug kind of captured that really well, especially in Witcher 3. Um, and he also had that element of being able to put emotion into the voice without it sounding far too emotional. You felt like Geralt was really repressing a lot of his feelings a lot of the time, which is, you know, a really big important thing for the character. Um, so yeah, like, uh, I, I do think Doug Cockle's voice will always have, like, that special place uh, in my heart, um, and will always be the one that I read it in. Um, 
And I did enjoy the show. Um, I really did. Uh, I thought the Butcher of Blaviken scene was amazing. I thought that was so well done. Um, uh, like kudos to the um, the fight coordinator for that. It was it was the choreographer was just on some other level for that scene. It was so good. Um, and I remember when I was watching it with friends, I just got really really excited <laughs> when that part came up. Um, and with the changes that they did make, like. In putting Triss in way earlier instead of, uh, you know, having Mother Nenica. Um, I kind of agreed with because it's going to tie Triss in a little bit more for the next season rather than her just being some random character that appears like she kind of did in the books. Um, so yeah, like I kind of understood where they were going with, with, with that because, um, you know, the first two books are kind of disjointed stories. Um, and, uh, I also understood people's complaints of like they felt that the show didn't have like a, a very good narrative and they didn't realize that it was jumping around from time to time because I had to explain to my friends who hadn't read the books where we were in terms of the books at this point um, and which story and what was in the past and what was in the present um, and all of that. So um, I, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was great. You could kind of tell that everyone who was working on it, it was a real passion project and everybody who was on it really loved it. Um, so yeah, I, I really did enjoy the show, but like, I feel, I feel like the, the book, um, canon has like a very special place, um, and, and always will. Um, especially because the games are technically like, <laughs> really, really glorified, uh, fan fiction <laughs> that somebody turned into a video game. Um, that's my favorite part actually about the Witcher yeah. fandom is kind of explaining <laughs> to people like, because before the series came out, I went to panels at conventions and the, one of the questions is always like, okay, well, how, who got here by, you know, the books and who got here by the games? And a lot of times the games dominated that, uh, you know, question. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm kind of laughing to myself as a guy who loves both to be like, it's kind of like saying like, oh, I love this fandom because of this fan fiction that's really, really expansive and became, you know, three games. And I play so much Gwent, by the way, one of the, for, for those of you who aren't uh, Witcher fans, um, real quick, there was a, in the, uh, in the third game, there's a mini game called Gwent, which is kind of a, you know, Hearthstone Magic the Jack Gathering sort of thing, which spun off to be its own game that I play over 670 hours, according to my good friends at GOG, because I love the lore. So why would I not want more lore and playing mm -hmm. a card game while I'm at it? So like, there's so much content about this thing that a lot of people don't know is spun off of City Projects, uh, Projects, um, games, which are technically fan fiction and not canon. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think that's great though. That, like, it's fan fiction and like, I think I think what really sold the games is it's fan fiction and it knows it's that and it doesn't try to like be anything more. Yeah, it like it puts a thousand percent into like the possibilities of things beyond what the books entail as well, so keeping the characters very true to themselves. I feel like the best character that CDPR ever wrote in was um Regis in Blood and Wine. Fantastic. Um and the voice actor they got for it was amazing as well. Um, I think he's like kind of a well-known British voice actor as well. He's been in a lot of um, BBC TV shows and things, I think, if I'm remembering right. Um, but yeah, he was he was great, a really good choice for Regis. Um, and it kind of makes me excited that if we do get that far in terms of the Netflix show, like who they'll cast as Regis, like I'm kind of excited for that. Um, 
but yeah, I feel I feel like uh, you know the games had that consistency of they kept the characters as as true to the books as they could, while also letting them have growth, like you know Geralt and Ciri's bond growing and found family being like the very big focus of the game, um, which I'm a sucker for. I will always buy into found family. Um, <laughs> like at the moment I'm playing Detroit Become Human, um, I, it's my first time playing it and I'm already all for the kind of found family angle they're going for. Um, so yeah, like, though, like, I think that's also like why The Witcher has so much charm, um, despite, you know, the, the kind of flaws or the, the, uh, problematic stuff it handles. At the end of the day, it's about this very emotionally repressed guy, um, coming to terms with uh, the fact that it's okay to be emotional and that, um, you know, he steps into this kind of fatherly role, uh, beginning, you know, like ag against his will, he doesn't want this child. Um, but, you know, coming to accept it and actually raise her very well. And, you know, it becomes like this very big part of himself and like he discovers who he is. And I really like that, especially because a lot of 1980s fiction at the time, by comparison, was a lot about men that repressed their emotions and were all really tough and everything, and like that was never explored. Yeah, very Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Very, you know, we just kill and behead and yeah. take the winch for ourselves and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I feel like you know, it was, it was something out there, and I think that's kind of um, why it had that kind of cult following um, for a while while it was being translated. Um, and I'm kind of glad actually that the the Witcher has become really big now. Um, because now I get to talk with far more people about it <laughs> beyond just my friends that don't understand what I'm talking about. So yeah, that's that's really nice. I'm I'm really glad that the witch is kind of coming into um, mainstream consciousness. And and I always had this theory, and now that I can talk to somebody who's officially writes the canon, I can get your opinion on this. So I'm super excited. But I think one of the things that sells the Witcher. And, and it's kind of contrary to what a lot of people say about it because a lot of people say like, oh, it's super morally gray and there's no, you know, good people and bad people. And while the games and the books do push themselves on that a lot, I respectfully disagree. I think what's great about The Witcher is that they lean into the camp and that at the end of the day, Geralt is a, just wants to do the right thing. He's a big sweetheart. He decides against neutrality because he constantly takes actions to try to help people. And he makes a family out of, you know, a bunch of outcasts, which, you know, one of my favorite stories uh, from the books, and I don't want to spoil anything, so it'll be sort of vague, is when, you know, him and his good friend Dandelion and a crew of friends who he's been spending time with listen to Dandelion at around a campfire, just sing a, a song and tell them a tale. And that apparently a werewolf crept on him. But was so impressed by the song and the tale that he just listened along and decided, no, nah, I'm not going to attack these guys and walked away. I mean, that's very tender. It's very camp. But I think that heart is in all of what the Witcher books is about, even with all the dark subject matter. And I think that's what makes it lovely as opposed to some of these more dirty, gritty sort of things, which is why I like it more than, you know, you know, Game of Thrones or something like that, which I've read as well. I really, I think what the one of the really big standout moments for me of like Geralt like really coming into his own um and like the kind of staple is you see this really grisly guy who's kind of you know an outcast um he isn't liked by people generally and he doesn't try to get people to like him as a defense mechanism um and uh you know you expect him to be this kind of brutal monster hunter and then in baptism of fire um i won't talk about like anything that becomes before and after the scene but there is um this very rare creature that kind of comes into camp and everyone's panicking um it's like a little eye stalk creature and it's uh it's a relic 
um, monster, which means it's very, very rare. Um, and everyone's like, Geralt, you have to kill it. Like, it's a monster. It's going to kill us and everything. And, you know, he stands up and, like, immediately says, like, you know, pass me a, a pot lid and, um, a soup ladle and everyone's like what is he doing and you know he just then begins banging it and explains to people that it's just scared of vibrations like if you can make a loud enough noise it will run away and it will never return it will just leave you alone and like he just explains it so calmly and uh just shows people how to deal with this uh monster that is technically very harmless because he would rather not kill it um, it's just, yeah, I think that kind of really shows Geralt as a person. Just that one little scene for me is like, that sums him up. Like, if he doesn't have to hurt someone, he won't do it. Like you said, he's just that really kind of big sweetheart. Um, just very kind, wants to do the right thing. And sometimes, you know, um, it's, it's not always, it doesn't always work out the way that he wants it to or the way that he hopes. Um, but you know he kind of has to to live with that it's kind of about that really um i think that's why people say like oh it's so morally gray and it's like well if you step into Geralt's shoes you kind of realize half the time this is the only decision he has where few people get hurt um but he has to acknowledge you know that he's put other people in danger and they get hurt uh which is you know just uh great storytelling in my opinion you know showing that every action has a consequence and sometimes there isn't a happy ending but it makes that kind of happy ending when it's there very sweet um and, and like just really nice um you know like uh reuniting with siri like that standout moment from both games and books is just great um like the kind of light-heartedness and 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 you know this kind of light in what is a setting that is usually very very dark um so it just kind of makes you uh treasure those moments more i think Yeah, and I uh, can't stop fawning over the series. So <laughs> I, I think half of the, the fun of this episode for me is just chatting about how much we both love Witcher. Yeah, yeah, it's nice just to talk about it. I really just love talking about <laughs> the Witcher. <laughs> Abs absolutely. I, I think I'll, I'll keep a little bit of that in the end, but I do want to give you a little more cred as you not only write uh, Witcher adventures and things like that. I mean, from my research, it looks like you've... Got stuff with Paizo here, obviously with Pathfinder, uh, done your Starfinder things, um, even working on Hellboy RPG stuff and more aids for Legend lore. I mean, aside from NDAs, which I understand, you can't tell me, is there something that you have not done yet that you can tell me that you'd like, oh, I'd love to do or get a chance to work with that? Um, hmm. I'd really love... Um to and and like i do plan for it at some point it's just getting the the time and the resources and everything i would just really love to commit myself to making a fifth edition disability supplement whether it's canon like official or not otherwise i i could not care less either way i would just love to make a supplement that just focuses on disability kind of the same way that i did for the the witcher ttrpg kind of covering everything um you know from from general medicine to um mental health um neurodivergency uh you know things like that um as well as physical disabilities or invisible ones or chronic illnesses like i would just really love to have the opportunity to do something like that whether i lead the project or whether it would just be something that i contribute to i don't mind i would just absolutely love that um 
yeah, I think that's definitely something that I would really like to do in the future. And with, obviously, the, it's been a rush of all these things happening for you, and I know you're talking about the general fatigue that you have associated with your condition, as well as the fatigue that comes from just creating all this content and stuff like that. Do you have these these these, these moments to where it, it kind of hits you, uh, all the other things you've been able to accomplish and do, and kind of why... For some re- maybe you know for some reason it got into the, the right hands and they they retweeted it or they liked it or they started implementing it on their shows and stuff like that. That like does it does it feel real? Does do you, do you have imposter syndrome? Um, like like how are you feeling mentally about all this? Because I also like you mentioned earlier, um, you know I know you're dealing with some horrible people in the community who don't want to acknowledge the the role of disability accessibility or disabled people even. And that's got to be a great toll on somebody who didn't ask for this. It's not like you're a Hollywood actress or star who decides like, okay, I'm going to subject myself to this. You just wanted to help people out and now you've been thrust into it all. So how, how, is, how are you feeling mentally? Are you doing all right? Um, I do have kind of bad imposter syndrome um, and I don't, I don't always kind of um, contribute to the community like every day. I do withdraw from it from times. There'll be times where I take like a week away from Twitter um, and stuff <clears throat> more for my mental health than anything else um, and I did go to, to therapy after you know the combat wheelchair because uh, death threats and just the kind of push and pull of like being thrown into something positive and then all of a sudden getting a load of like crap huh? like a load of negativity for that um, it was kind of just to and fro all the time and I felt very confused um, in who I was and um, what all this meant um, and it was really hard. It was really difficult. Um, and it still is sometimes. Um, you know, like, uh, I'll get like a tweet every now and then from someone in the critical role community who's like, oh, I really love, um, Dagon and his axe, Sheila. And, you know, um, you know, I, I, I completely like understand how important it means to them. But at the same time, it doesn't feel real to me, um, that, you know, Matt Mercer of all people, reached out on Twitter to ask me if he could use something I made, um, something that I never thought would ever um, kind of get the reach that it got. Um, so yeah, like talking uh, about that with like, you know, therapists and stuff um, and, and working through it. And there, there are still days where it's really hard. Um, and when I was working on um, Medicine on the Path, uh, it was a lot of fighting with myself to to be like you know people really do want this and uh the negativity that you will get possibly won't matter because you know the people who it's for it will matter too and at the end of the day that's what should matter um but i was very uncertain if i wanted to put myself out there again and you know subject myself again to um potentially being a target for you know the the less kind people in the community and there's been a few, um, but, you know, it doesn't really matter about their opinion because I noticed that n- none of them really are, like, in the Witcher community. Um, and the Witcher TTRPG community has been so kind um, and so very supportive. And, you know, Artel Saurian Games, um, obviously, legally, they can't endorse homebrew things, um, but, you know, they've been very supportive of the work and everything. Um, and the time that went into it, um, which means a lot as well, like having that kind of direct, um, you know, feeling of um, being supported by uh, a company 
um, that made the original thing that you make something for. Um, so that was really nice. Um, and, you know, still at the same time, uh, I'm still kind of uh, on and off with Twitter. Um, I don't know if I'll ever get used to it. Um, imposter syndrome is like this really hard thing to, to get over. Like you, you feel like you've kind of come to terms with things and then, you know, you can wake up the next day and start writing and just feel like everything you're doing is terrible, um, and doesn't matter. And, um, you know, like, uh, sometimes I've had thoughts where it's like, oh, it was just, you know, like I kind of flash in the pan and nobody cares about it anymore. Nobody wants it. Um, even though those thoughts are very ridiculous and they're just intrusive. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot to deal with mentally. Um, but I feel a little bit, especially with the, the Witcher content that I put out, I feel like I've been, um, a bit more confident in that area because I'm really, really passionate about The Witcher and I really care about it. And I did spend, uh, not to say I didn't spend a lot of time on the combat wheelchair because from other interviews I've been in, I've been very explicit with how long it took, you know, like nearly a year to make that thing. Um, and then with this, it was, you know, like a, a roughly seven, six months of research and, and work went into it. Um, while I was also, you know, co-writing an, an adventure for the for the Witcher TTRPG officially, um, so yeah, it's been it's been hectic, and um, it feels like some things have settled in place, and I'm a bit more used to things. Um, but I don't think I will ever be, you know, a hundred percent sure about everything. Um, for example, there's UK Games Expo this month, July at the end of the month in the UK. Um, and I've got a meet and greet there and, you know, that's, that's kind of terrifying. Um, I've never had any kind of, I guess, spotlight, um, put on me physically. Um, so yeah, having to, to kind of deal with that and I know I'll be very nervous on the day. Um, but it's all about just kind of at the minute, kind of just taking each day as it comes. Um. Yeah, it's 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 been a lot, but it's also you know been been something that I'm actively trying to uh, work through and become better at. Well, I I hope you know whenever you feel ready enough for it that that you'll come out and do more things with the community, either you know in person or releasing content online. Um, as as long as you feel mentally up for it and you love what you do, which sounds like with the Witcher and the combat wheelchair and a lot of the things you've done, it does feel like things you're 100% passionate about, then we'll definitely be here. Uh, can't wait to, to, to hear more from you as things come on. And for, you know, as we wrap up, for any of the people listening, if they wanted to get into contact you or follow you, what would be the best means, Sarah? Um, the best thing to do is check out my Twitter, uh, twitter.com forward slash Mustangs Art, which is M-U-S-T-A-N-G-S-A-R-T. Um, I kind of do everything there, um, like links to my Patreon um, and, and all that stuff and the content that I make, um, like the combat wheelchair is my pinned tweet, medicine on the path will be something that I constantly retweet now, um, you know, every other day or every day just to make sure you know, people are finding it easily. So it will be near the top, it will be near the top of my page. Um, and I also have a work business email in the bio um, on Twitter as well. So like if you just want a message with, um, you know, I've had just people um, who enjoy the work message me, you can do that. 
um and it's not just for just you know solid business um like i don't mind hearing from people it's always nice to to hear from people who enjoyed the work um but yeah twitter is 100 percent where to uh keep an eye on everything that i'm doing yeah and if you enjoy this podcast obviously the my RPG podcast can be found on, you know, Google Podcasts, Spotify, um, iTunes, or whatever they call it nowadays, Apple Podcasts, wherever podcasts are found around the globe. My uh, email for the podcast is myrpgpodcast at gmail.com. That's myrpgpodcast at gmail.com. Personal Twitter is classy underscore Don. That's D-O-N. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the table.